woman still being portrayed as this black box. Oh, you know, we don't know, you know, there's a black box. So it really uh, keeps me up, not all night, but, uh, you know, maybe five minutes before I go to bed thinking, you know, what can we discover more? I mean, uh, the, 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 the great uh, advance in, in, in biotechnology has allowed us to look at single species and, you know, things that we we often say that we know very little of the micro uh, microorganisms that are present in the room, and there is several that we, you know, we simply don't know. A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming soon. Now you have the brightest minds in the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Excellent by Protecta, a novel product for the management of hypocalcemia, its uncomplicated excellence. Diamond V, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. DSM, providing innovative feed additives that improve the efficiency and profitability of dairy production. And AB Vista. Welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show. My name is Joe McFadden, and I am your host once again. Joining me today is Dr. Antonio Fasciola, Associate Professor of Livestock Nutrition in the Department of Animal Sciences at the University of Florida. His overall research goal is to further our understanding of ruminant nutrition to improve the efficiency of nutrient use as a means to enhance animal production and minimize negative environmental impacts. Antonio, welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show. Thank you, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, all right. On a serious note, um, I was just reading the news, and I have to ask, were you and your family impacted by Hurricane Ian at all? Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, thankfully, no. Uh, we had very minor uh, damage here. Uh, hopefully, you know, luckily, Gainesville is it's, it's well in land that most hurricanes, by the time they get here, uh, they lose a lot of uh, their power. So thank you. Yeah, good. Uh, I know um, we, we have a couple of students that have affiliations with Florida one way or the other. And so we're, we're certainly aware of that up here in the Northeast. And, um, you know, don't, don't hesitate if you ever need anything. If, whatever I could do to help, I, I, I'd be the first to help. <laughs> thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, my objective today is to dive into sort of rumen biology with you. And you have a nice um, developing career focused on rumen biology. You've a lot of, I've read most of your, not most, you have a lot of papers, but I read uh, several of your recent papers, and, and it's very compelling, some of the storylines you're developing. You know, over the last century, we've certainly gained a considerable appreciation of how the rumen of the cow functions. But I think as the more you study it, the more questions sort of emerge, uh, just like anything in science. And so I have a very simple question. So why, what, what, what drives you to study the rumen of the dairy cow? What, what, what is the interest? What is the passion? Why, why, why does that exist for you? Yeah, thanks, Joe. I, I think, uh, as, as you know, ruminants are, are such unique animals because they can convert, you know, uh, cellulose uh, and, and fiber, fibrous materials into uh, delicious and very nutritious uh, foods. Uh, they're uh, nutrient-dense foods. Uh, so the rumen plays a major role because that's where... Uh, a vast majority of uh, structural carbohydrates are going to be digested. 
also the rumen provides the microbial protein that grows in the rumen and it's one of the main sources of amino acids to to cows the rumen is fascinating because of this anaerobic chamber that ferments uh, and produces also gases uh, so there is a lot of uh, a, a lot of really cool things about the rumen and i think that's that's where most of my excitement lies in terms of uh, nutrition. Yeah, it's you know, I we we you know, just like you, you you're you're heavily engaged in social media, and, and certainly throughout social media, you get engaged with folks that have common interests. But we've recently had a chance to go out and talk to some consumers in downtown Ithaca and uh, about their understanding of ruminant biology, and um, there's a lot that is missed uh, in terms of the real. Um, so the, the strength, the value of having ruminants uh, to produce food for us. And, uh, the, um, you know, we need to certainly work, do our part in the future to really make sure that the, the consumer is fully aware uh, of, those, um, of those benefits. You know, one of the things that's pretty obvious when I look at your papers is that you're certainly an expert in various methodologies. And, you know, when it comes to the, the in vitro systems to, to evaluate rumen biology, for me, I can get a bit lost in terms of uh, what's the best technique. And I just want to talk about a couple here and help you uh, have, have you help me um, provide a little bit more understanding of the, the pros and cons for different techniques. And so the single flow versus dual flow continuous culture fermentation systems. Those are pretty lengthy terms, but what in the world do those mean? <laughs> yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, yeah, I, I certainly developed over the, the, the years uh, a passion for, for different methodologies. And even though I didn't work with uh, those methodologies during my PhD, I did all my work was in vivo work. I saw a great opportunity to to further develop those those methodologies. Most of them were not developed by me. The dual flow, for example, uh, was developed in West Virginia by Hoover uh, in the 70s. Um, and dual flow means that there is two flows and one is what we consider to be a solid flow and a liquid flow and that's that's very powerful because allows us to look at things like for example microbial population associated with liquid uh, phase and also microbes associated with solid phase uh, whereas a single flow uh, doesn't give us that that much of uh, details uh, however valid methods i think one one thing that really distinguished the, uh, the continuous culture from other types of in vitro that are uh, more well known is the fact that it's a larger volume, uh, replicates better, it's a more robust uh, 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 model for the rumen, and also it's a continuous fermentation. So a lot of those uh, smaller scale in vitro systems, they ferment for 24 hours, 48 hours, etc. Here we're talking about a system that can ferment for 10 days or longer. And I think that gives a lot of uh, a power to the, to the system. You know, are there things that you can't sort of, you know, replicate in these systems that you observe in vivo and, and how do you manage that? Or Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a common question is, you know, the system, uh, it simulates the rumen, 
but we cannot extrapolate and say, okay, based on this diet, the cows are going to produce, you know, 45 liters of uh, milk or, or something like that. So it's a very powerful tool to compare dif different treatments. So it can rank treatments well. It can tell you this fiber is better than this. This additive is better than that. Uh, however, will not will not, uh, it, it would be incorrect to extrapolate that to an in vivo animal because we are not actually measuring in an in vivo animal. So what about the rumen fluid itself? I mean, are, do you have certain criteria in terms of the type of rumen fluid you collect or for how many cows? I mean, to me, this has always been sort of a sort of a mystery to me because, you know, when you read these papers where they talk about, oh, we took rumen fluid from two or three cows and we pulled that together, but there's been very little insight maybe into the, or, or description of maybe the, the diet or the environment or even the, the, the cow's genetics, you know? And so uh, talk to me about some of the criteria you use in terms of the rumen fluid. Yeah, that's a great point. And it's something that if you really dig deep, there is very little, if any, uh, publications actually evaluating that. Uh, so we, we, we follow, uh, the procedure we follow, we collect rumen fluid from two or three cows, depending on the experiment. We have, we have a large herd here at the University of Florida, 550 cows. Uh, and uh, at any given time, we have about 10 cannulated cows, depending on the needs of uh, the department. Um, those cows, they come from the same group of animals. So we hope that they are a good representation of the herd that we have here, which is, you know, pure hosting cows, uh, high producing cows. Um, and um, we, we, we don't know, uh, I think that's a, a big, a big question mark. We don't know uh, what would be the best way. For example, if we were to in incubate uh, rumen fluid from single animals in each of the dual flows, we, we run into problems like uh, uh, statistical power or degrees of freedom that makes it really difficult to actually have. And we also have the variation from animal to animal. It becomes, it becomes a mess. Um, so what we try to do is try to collect uh, a representative sample uh, of what would be the rumen population of cows in a particular herd. And then we use that as inoculation for the system. All right. Yeah, that makes complete sense. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things, a lot of, a lot of potential research there that we certainly could dive deep into. And, you know, one of the things I understood from reading one of your papers is that one of the disadvantages is lower protozole populations. Um, but what's, what's driving that? Why is that the case? Yeah, um, so we, we, we are currently evaluating that and uh, people like uh, Jeff Perkins at Ohio State uh, and, and, and collaborators also have looked at this in the past and I think still looking at that. Um, part of that, it may be the, the, the rate of passage that it's something that we adjust uh, in, in, in our allowing or preventing protozoa to stay longer in the system. So they, they simply flow out of the rumen. Uh, and part of that, it could be that just dying inside the fermenters um, because it's a you know, different environment than in the rumen. Uh, so we are, we are trying to do some cool things to account for that, like covering and changing the colors of the fermenters. We're still working on some of those projects. Um, now, in the past, has 
some research has tried to use filters to keep the protozoa in. Uh, the problem with that is that also keeps some of the particle sizes in uh, or the, some of the nucleus don't flow out. So then, in one hand, you have better representation of protozoa population, but you have uh, a, a, a less ideal representation of what's flowing out, which messes up your uh, determination of uh, nutrient digestion, which really uh, defeats the purpose of having a simulation of the rumen fermentation if you can't have that nutrient outflow. So it's really a, 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 a fine balance. And what we are most focused on is the outputs. So we want to have adequate outflow of nutrients. We want to have adequate fermentation in the fermenters. And that's what we focus the most. So it's, it's a lot of trial and error, to be honest with you. And that's how we fine-tune those experiments. Oh, yeah, it's very, you know, you use a very methodical approach, which is good. I mean, I've, and I've seen your system, at least photos of it. Uh, it's, it's quite impressive. Um, when, when it comes to methane mitigation technologies, and so protozoa play a key role here in, in this conversation, but um, in terms of in vitro systems, what role do they play in sort of defining the efficacy of inhibitors of, of methanogenesis? Oh, that's that's a very hot topic, right? Uh, it's 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 important for efficiency, for uh, energy utilization. So uh, I think in vitro systems will play a, a big role in in, in determining uh, again difference in treatments, difference in uh, feed additives. Um, so kind of like the screening process before you go to the gold standard, which is really uh, in vivo work. So I think in vitro systems allows us to quantify total gas, to quantify different types of gases, and uh, and and to correlate that or associate that with microbial population types, types of diets, different levels of fiber, and etc. So I think the in vitro systems really allows us to not only measure the gases but also what's what's associated with that changes in gas production. This, this might be a tough question, but um, it, it, are there examples of feed additives that were tested both in vitro and in vivo where the results don't necessarily align um, or examples of feed additives where they do align closely in terms of methane inhibition? Yeah, there is certainly some variation. And I, I, always, I always tell my students that, you know, every 10 or so experience we run, there is, you know, a couple that, you know, really hits the targets in terms of what we expect. And sometimes what we least expect can become in the future some of the most important findings. So there is certainly variation, and that's why we strive to do replications, to do more than one experiment. Sometimes companies approach or even, uh, you know, federal or, you know, grants and things like that. We need to do multiple experiments to, to validate one experiment. Often, it's not enough to, to prove a concept. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I've, I've, even though I don't do any in vitro work myself, I've been, I've been advocating for, you know, the, the value of an in vitro data to help us better understand mode of action in terms of how these um, additives are potentially um, influencing methanogenesis. Um, 
So there's a lot of value there and look forward to seeing more, more come out of your group. You know, another question I have about protozoa is that I read a paper, you had a meta-analysis focused on the effects of ruminal protozoa on methane emissions. And you really talk about two groups of ruminal protozoa and how they uniquely influence methanogenesis. Uh, can you explain that a bit more? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's right. That's that's. Uh, I'm I'm proud of this project, which is uh, a former student in my group uh, uh, started working on protozoa towards the end of her uh, PhD, and then we continue that 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 uh, project, and uh, we partnered with some colleagues to look at uh, 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 a large uh, data set, and we conducted this meta analysis, and basically. When we talk about protozoa, it's it's a pretty diverse group of uh, of uh, of uh, cells, and and and, and uh, we have two main groups: entogenomorphs and isotretes, and they have very different metabolism. They also consume different types of nutrients. Um, and isotretes, which are much larger, they are considered to be the ones that are more associated with uh, with methane production and methanogens. The, Organisms that produce methane, uh, but we we really didn't have a lot of evidence. And and this meta analysis showed that when we look, if we just extrapolate and say total protozoa, we're actually missing a big part of the information because entogenomorphs, even though they are very numerous in the rumen, they contribute much less to methane formation than isotretes. So looking at those populations separately give us more robust uh, models to predict methane emissions and, and also to uh, even perhaps develop uh, target uh, 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 feed additives that will target specific protozoa. Any, any ideas of types of additives that could influence one of these two, two groups of protozoa? Yeah, uh, not yet, not yet. We, we believe that some of the, the current additives may already be being targeted that and we don't know. So isotretes, for example, they are known to uh, thrive uh, under high starch, uh, high fermentable carbohydrates. So some of those feed additives that may be used in, in those type of diets may, may be already targeting them. So that's something that we would love to explore further. Now, I, whenever I teach one a class, one of my first icebreakers I always ask and it's very, um, probably, my, my students probably call me a science nerd, which is fine. But I always ask them, what is your favorite organelle? Okay. And so what, so what are hydrogenosomes and why are they important to this conversation? Yeah. So those are organelles that uh, are produce, they, 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 they release hydrogen. And, 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 and in the protozoa, we believe that there is uh, methanogens, which are those archaea, population that leave attached to protozoa and use those hydrogenosomes, get get those hydrogens to form methane. And, and that's one of the uh, the really importance of the, those organelles. Got it. Well, you know, certainly a lot of research focus on um, methane inhibition in, in the near future. Um, and, and certainly a lot of opportunity to understand the, the role of these additives in the Rubin. I want to switch gears a bit and talk... Um, about something else that's lurking in the rumen that can cause potential concern, and it's called lipopolysaccharide, or LPS. Uh, you certainly uh, have quite a few papers sort of emerging on the study of ruminal LPS. First, what is lipopolysaccharide? 
Yeah, I think so. So this is something we, we've been exploring the last couple of years. So lipopolysaccharides are components of the membrane of, uh, of bacteria, for example, and they are present uh, in our guts. And when bacteria dies, they release those polysaccharides and, and they have uh, uh, biological function in our body and they, they trigger inflammation. And that's something that uh, 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 people working on inflammation has been evaluated for a long time, mostly using E. coli LPS as a model for inflammation. And it's a very well defined and very well established inflammation mo- uh, 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 inflammation uh, 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 model uh, for, 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 for animals in general. And I was very curious uh, about ruminants because they harbor this immense uh, 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 bacterial population and they are exposed to ruminal LPS and all the time. And what does that do to the rumen or even cause ruminal? So we start looking at LPS from a ruminant standpoint. How does that differ from E. coli LPS? And what kind of impacts uh, diets will have in different types of bacteria that will produce different types of LPS? So that's in a nutshell how we got hooked on, on that. Uh, topic. Now, so this is something I think uh, a hypothesis is that we've often overlooked the the potential uniqueness of various types of lipopolysaccharides, and so um, and we've just generalized it in a way in, in terms of animal science over the last couple of decades. But in terms of the structure of LPS, how can that structure be unique? Yeah. Right. So, so, so depending on the bacteria, they will have different, so, uh, different, uh, uh, lipids on those, on those, on those associated with those polysaccharides. And we believe that's part of the uniqueness of that compound is going to be the different types of lipids. And, 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 uh, and there is a part of the, the molecule called lipid A, and that, uh, may also differ differ between species and it could be the reason why some LPS are considered to be more inflammatory and some uh, LPS may be less inflammatory. Is there any indication for types of diets or ingredients or, or environmental scenarios, what, whatever the, the condition that is there, have you observed anything where you see differences in, in structures? We have very preliminary work. In fact, one of our uh, projects was just um, uh, a really a, a, like a, a pilot study, just looking at you know cows eating high grain diet versus cows that were like in a in a in a in a pasture on pasture, and w- we observed some difference in the composition. But because we didn't have enough animals to really uh, do a detailed study, I can't really have a final answer, but it, it does seem, and there is evidence from human literature and from other animals that diet plays a role. And, and we know as ruminant nutritionists that diets will dictate at least part of the microbial population. And those microbes, they may have different, uh, they may produce different types of LPS. Yes, but not quite there yet to, to give a final answer on exactly how does that change. So in terms of LPS, and we, and there's, there's definitely an appreciation for the fact that it can 
and elicit an immune response. What, what is that? What's the biology look like? What is that? Um, what are the mechanisms there to explain that? Good question. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I'd love to team up with uh, uh, people who understand much more post-ruminal than I do, because it seems like the, the mechanisms, like, you know, like people like yourself, Lance Bar- uh, Baumgart, and, uh, uh, and, and many others are, uh, have, been, and Barry Bradford, have, have been looking at LPS inflammation in the small intestine, even large intestine. And, and it seems like the, the mechanism, it's, 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 it's post-ruminal. Uh, we don't know if there is any, uh, first of all, if the receptors are there and if there is any translocation of that LPS. In other words, we don't know if that LPS really gets to the bloodstream from the rumen or if it's just flowing out of the rumen and then becoming inflammatory agents after that. So that's what we are really trying to understand the role that the the rumen microbes play in that supply of LPS in the rumen and also, and most important, even after the rumen. DSM strives to bring our customers efficient, profitable dairy solutions. From essential vitamins like High D and Victus Transition to next generation products like Biofix, our portfolio is growing as we continue to bring innovation to the dairy industry. Visit dsm.com to learn more about our newest solutions. Now, back to the structure business. Is there any indication that the structure can influence the immunogenicity, the, the, I guess, the, the immune response? Is that, is that influenced by LPS structure? Probably not in the cow, but maybe, maybe there's something in non-ruminants and rodents maybe? Yeah, I- well, a lot of the LPS that it's commercially available comes from E. coli LPS, and we know that that's that's really potent and and really and causes inflammation and and, and people use as well-established models. When we uh, isolate LPS from rumen bacteria, we don't get the same type of response. Uh, and in uh, we, we've done a couple of different studies uh, uh, isolating that LPS and using that in pure cultures, for example, and some bacteria actually like it. It seems like they use that as a carbohydrate source, so they actually thrive on that. So we want to understand which type of bacteria thrive on those conditions, and if that may be associated with other metabolic disorders like acidosis, for example, is does that create a, a better environment for, for those bacteria? We don't know. We don't know if there is cause, you know, cause effect there, or if it's just association. So we are just kind of starting to explore that. Yeah. So that was my next question about the relationship between ruminal acidosis and LPS. Um, I mean, what are the what are the um, sort of the applied applications here to in terms of dietary approaches to reduce ruminal LPS production? In those scenarios. So I think it started, at least in my head, started when I started reading uh, papers uh, uh, under acidosis conditions where uh, they, uh, the authors reported a, a LPS concentration that was several fold higher than typical LPS levels in the rumen. So then, then it begs the question, is, is the acidosis that is causing you know, bacterial death and release of this LPS uh, or is the LPS that is also, you know, uh, available in the rumen that is causing this snowball effect, uh, and and become and, and the and the results that we that we observe 
the, the pathogenesis that we, we that we observe in cows is that due to the low pH in the rumen, or is that due to the LPS that is, uh, you know, flooding the the bloodstream? Uh, so that's what we are trying to 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 better understand if there is any any association, any cause effect with uh, metabolic disease such as uh, uh, acidosis and LPS concentrations. Now, you have a paper published in the Journal of Applied and Environmental Microbiology, and I'm paraphrasing here, but you say LPS may contribute to ruminal acidosis. How does that happen? Yeah, so in that, that study, we looked at pure cultures, and we, we dosed LPS onto these pure cultures. And as I was saying, some of, some of the bacteria that uh, uh, thrive under acidosis condition, they also use LPS as a fuel yeah so a substrate so so we thought that hmm, maybe maybe it's uh it, it, you know it's it there is something going on there and 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 they but we 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 haven't been able to do many other trials and we hope to to be able to continue that work to to better elucidate if if you know in, not only in pure cultures but in, in mixed in mixed bacteria where it's a little more realistic of what's happening uh, in, in the rumen. I know you know that I, I've been exploring um, sort of total tract digest, um, digestibility, but total tract permeability as well um, in regards to different environmental and dietary scenarios. But, you know, we have no real way to understand what's going on in the rumen specifically. I mean, in terms of the, the leaky gut conversation, in the most recent podcast, we had a conversation about heat stress. And, um, is the rumen leaky? Does it leak? And what does it leak? Yeah, I don't know. So that that's one thing. Uh, for example, in in a, in an in vitro system, is difficult, right? We don't have that absorption. We have the flow out, which is already uh, which is great. So we we have an estimation of what's coming out, but we don't have absorption. So we know that things like ammonia and VFAs they get absorbed uh, through the rumen wall. Um, it wouldn't surprise me to know that things like LPS and other uh, uh, other compounds that are, um, let's say, metabolic active in the, in the body also uh, uh, are, are leaking. Um, so that that's fascinating. I would love to team up with you and your students, maybe maybe to look into more in, in depth on, on what's possibly leaking and what what is you know what is causing that and what are the consequences of, of that leak yeah absolutely i mean lots of opportunity for sure uh, we have a, a job for the near future there's no question about that um now i have this is the last question here is pretty open uh, where do we go next to improve our understanding of rumen biology like what, what are the what, are, what really so you, you you stay awake an extra five minutes every night because this is what you're thinking about. <laughs> yeah, well, there's this notion that and and you read reviews, even reviews that are not very uh, very old, uh, and the rumen still being portrayed as this black box. Oh, you know, we don't know, you know, there's a black box. So it really uh, keeps me. Uh, not all night, but, uh, you know, maybe five minutes before I go to bed thinking, you know, what can we discover more? I mean, uh, the, 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 the great uh, advance in, in, in biotechnology has allowed us to look at single species and, you know, things that we, 
we often say that we know very little of the micro uh, microorganisms that are present in the rumen. There is several that we you know we simply don't know. So uh, those those are tools that if we can translate that to nutrition, because the problem is we have a lot of excellent microbiologists, we have a lot of excellent nutritionists. Rumen microbiologists, not so many. We have several that are great, uh, and I think there's a lot of room for progress in, in that area, understanding those those the, the role that those microbes play. Um, now we have, of course, methane is a hot topic, uh, also uh, heat stress, as you mentioned, global warming, things like that. Uh, so uh, if we look at what a cow used to produce 10, 15, 20 years. I mean, we've made uh, uh, great contributions uh, to, to improve that efficiency of nutrient utilization. But we can still do more. Just this meta-analysis on protozoa, for example, we could potentially reduce 35% methane by eliminating uh, the right protozoa, for example. So there is there's great opportunities uh, for sure. We, we, we really need to continue to uh, have those highly motivated students and, and funding so we can actually empower them to you know, be the next generation of uh, rumen nutritionists, microbiologists, to really um, take us to the next level of efficiency. Well, thank you for that positive note. I know you've done uh, a lot of work to support the next generation of animal scientists and is certainly most appreciated by everybody in, the, in our community. So thank you. I want to thank Dr. Antonio Fasciola, Associate Professor of Livestock Nutrition at the University of Florida, for his contributions focused on rumen biology and the dairy cow. And thanks to those that are listening to the Dairy Podcast Show. Stay tuned for future episodes. Thank you.